Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. And we're back talking about depositions. Last episode, we talked about deposition strategy, general considerations. Today, we're talking about how to prepare for a deposition. The hard work. Yeah. Once you figure out what you want to accomplish, it's time to start prepping, and you should spend much more time prepping than you than you spend in the depot. So, Tim, this is a question directed personally and specifically to you. Your depot's at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. When do you start preparing? <laughs> I Hopefully, I have already started preparing, but it depends on what the depot is. Tim's more of a last-minute kind of yeah, person. You, you probably spend more time than I do. I'm able to focus much more when I emergently have to accomplish something. <laughs> I start preparing, like I just create these Word documents for outlines and I add to them over weeks. And just if I get an idea, I, I put it in the outline. So when I get to that day where you are, Tim, like maybe a day or two before the deposition, I have some stuff already, some stuff. One thing I, I stole from John is I keep a shadow file in cases with all the most important documents and pleadings in the case. So I don't have to go gather stuff to start prepping. But let's talk about the steps you want to make sure you go over. I come from this from a little bit different vantage point probably than some of the other lawyers in the office. I will come into a case to take a deposition, probably one that I didn't take the prior depositions in the case. And I'll come in, the case has been pending for a year, year and a half, maybe a half a dozen depositions have been taken. It's either a more significant deposition or we're getting a little bit closer to trial and I'm getting more involved in the case. So almost without exception, I'm coming into a case where there's a pretty extensive file. Depositions have been taken, written discovery. And so my process is starting from the beginning. So you might have to spend two days getting up to speed with what I already know from having done. So I might not, yes. you know, yep. I yep, am absolutely. kind of a, a last minute person, but I may be able to start getting ready the day before because I already have in my head the knowledge of everything that's happening. What I'll do is I'll start probably a week or so before, and I don't necessarily spend a week on it, but I'll start enough in advance so that it gives me some time not only to think, but to do some additional investigation, get some stuff online get some things that we don't have for this particular witness's deposition. I'll read the pleadings, not just our pleadings, but what the affirmative defenses to see what the legal issues are in the case. There's an added benefit to that. A lot of times you don't go back and read your complaint, the whole case. And as you've developed evidence, you should keep reading the pleadings again before you take a depot because you might go, oh, my theory has kind of adjusted and I haven't made this specific allegation. And it reminds you that you need to amend it and keep in mind what affirmative defenses the other side has. Just as an example, agency might be an issue in your case. And we have a case, Tim and I, that agency is an issue and it's in Florida. It's the main issue. It's the main issue. And so before I started taking depositions in that case, we had done some research, but I not only looked over the research, but we did some additional research because I really wanted to get to the bottom of agency as it applied to the facts of our specific case. It's so specific, I wanted the exact language. I wanted from the cases that found agency or didn't, I wanted to know what the language was, whether it was a document or whether it was testimony. So going into that deposition, I read a lot of cases and knew specifically word for word, if they said this, we had trouble. If they said this, we're good. 
and was kind of like knowing the law inside and out. I mean, you really needed to know that. And a lot of other cases, product liability, if it's a case in Missouri, I don't need to review the law. I've looked at it hundreds and hundreds of times, but it never hurts. Yeah. After the pleadings, I usually go back and review the discovery answers again. Certainly the defendants, but I mean, before prepping my client for a depot, I go back and double check our discovery answers to see if I need to supplement anything and go over them with my client. But go over the defendant's discovery answers and their documents. I mean, in some cases, like you said, John, in the last session, you have 86,000 documents. You can't, you can't go over them all again. But Which leads um, to my question to both of you. How do you make all of that information accessible for use at the deposition? In other words, if you've got thousands of pages, maybe still hundreds of those documents and discovery are useful and you want to be able to get to them quickly. So hopefully you have, before you start taking depositions in that kind of situation, you have someone at the office has indexed the documents. And so you know what Bates numbers are what document and you have pulled out hot docs and then you keep them with you. And beyond that, I mean, for the remote depots, I have every document possible I can pull up, but it's hard to remember. So when you say hot docs out of thousands, you might end up with a few dozen. I might end up with maybe a dozen multi-page documents. And then out of those, the good information is somewhere within those dozen pages of a particular and document. I'll How do you do those that? again before every depot? Do you use post-it notes or do you have another system that works for you? I usually have highlights and tabs or post-it notes. And hopefully by the time I'm taking the sixth depot, I have those documents memorized. John, same thing for you. Same thing here. What I'll do too is it's easy to sort and figure out what documents you're going to use based on who the witness is. And most of the cases that I work on, if it's an expert, for instance, they've given tons of depositions. I know what the issue is going to be. Figure out what the expert is going to testify to. It really allows you to narrow it down quite a bit. A lot of times you won't really know what specific topic the witness is going to address. And in those circumstances, as Tim said, you know what the best documents are for you in your case that'll help you advance the case and you kind of are able to identify those. And in a medical malpractice case, I mean, sometimes we'll have 10,000 pages of medical records and they're from, you know, 30 different providers. What I try to have our team do before we start taking depots, you're going to end up taking different types of specialty doctors, is break down the medical records into subsets of hot docs based on the field of medicine. And then if I'm taking, you know, a neurologist, I have a set of the most important medical records that deal with neurology. And I'll go back and review those again before I take a neurologist step. Once you've identified those documents, you have to pre-mark them for the deposition. I mean, there's no way you're going to be marking documents in a deposition. I'm a big fan of marking your deposition exhibits as trial exhibits. In other words, mark your exhibits as you would for trial. Use the same number that you're going to use at trial. So you avoid the situation where you take 20 or 30 depositions in a case, and then when you get ready to go to trial, you've got deposition exhibits, and then you've got trial exhibits, and, and you're going to play a deposition, for instance, and they're talking about deposition exhibit eight, and it's really trial exhibit 118. We've talked about that, right, Tim? Yeah, I mean, I just, I like the freedom of being able to organize the exhibit list right before trial once I have all of them in the way I want it organized for trial. I mean, I certainly do see the benefit of Every time you say an exhibit number in every depot, you know it's the same document. Rather than going back through in every depot, you start with exhibit one again, and it's different stuff. And especially if you're doing a video depot, the jury's hearing you refer to exhibit two to the depot, and they're like, I, you introduced exhibit two with the last witness, and it's it's a police report. Like, what? <laughs> so there's a benefit to that. It can lead to less confusion for the jury. And the real nightmare is where you have a deposition. I've seen this in some cases, not recently, where the same deposition exhibit gets different deposition stickers. Yeah. So you have one exhibit with four stickers from four depositions. They're like, why are we doing this? 
I will mark everything we get. If it's medical records, they're bait stamped. If they're documents produced by one of the defendants in a case, they're bait stamped. And I just utilize the bait stamp numbers. Right. And so, for instance, if I have three defendants in a case, from the beginning, from the get-go, I will say, okay, this defendant's exhibits will be marked as Group Exhibit 1. This is Group Exhibit 2. This is Group Exhibit 3. And then just use the Bates numbers. You don't have to change anything. You know how to get to a document quickly, especially now everything's online. I definitely do that with a bunch of like defendants' documents they produced. I have them as one exhibit and I just refer to the Bates numbers. I did that too. And I, I, there was a deposition against AmeriQuest. This is quite a few years ago and where the consul opposed this and said, you can't do that. And I said, show me the rule about I have to mark my exhibits starting with one and then two. And I can't use the Bates number after that. There's no rule that I know of. The point is, go back through the stuff in your case before you sit down to take testimony under oath where you're trying to prove your case. You need to go back and remind yourself everything. And I mentioned this in the last session, and I learned this from you, John. I keep a Redwell or a shadow file for every case with multiple copies of all the most important documents in it. The most recent complaint, the discovery answers, the most important documents or medical records, and I'll add to it as I go. But I always have that with me. It's something that if I don't have as much time as I'd like to before a depot to prep, I've got the most important stuff already in that shadow file already organized to at least go through that stuff. First deposition I'm taking in a particular case, what I will do is, is when I'm reviewing the file, I will create a two or three page summary of the case, the main points, facts, issues. And that's really the first three pages of every, I just incorporate that into any deposition I have in the rest of the case. As you progress in the case, you're going to add more things to it. Witnesses are going to say certain things, but it's something that you don't have to, as they say, reinvent the wheel. I think the overall lesson here or tip is always be the most prepared person in the room. Being prepared always helps you. There's no worse feeling than sitting in a depot or being at trial and feeling like the other side is more prepared than you. You feel like you're failing your client. I agree 100%. It's the great equalizer, as I like to say. The other thing, too, is it is such an advantage with everything we have online. We have in our pocket access to essentially all human knowledge. Think about that. Think about the stuff that's out there on everybody. And then you talk about expert witnesses, articles that they've written, depositions they've taken. Do your homework on the witness. Once you got the file all summarized and you understand what the issues are, and you know what the facts are, you know what the defenses are, affirmative defenses, what you need to prove. Start looking at getting info on the witness, but don't do it the day before. Get a law clerk or you start on it yourself a month before, a couple weeks before. There's almost nothing in this world you can't learn about by getting on the internet. Whether the topic is, you know, you're dealing with a brake issue and how that particular braking system works on a car or a specific medical issue, research the subject matter. You can find articles out there. You can find, I mean, you should never rely on Wikipedia exclusively as a, as a reliable source, but it <laughs> can a be start. a good jumping good off point yeah, yeah. to learn about a subject. You can Google and find and learn about almost any topic. Like you have an entire library, every library in the world. Right. To access. No, so at your fingertips, I oftentimes, after I go through the documents, the pleadings, all that stuff, like we talked about. I will just get on the internet and spend a couple hours learning about the subject matter and taking notes about what like the main points of what I've learned. So that when I'm talking to a technical witness, it sounds like I know what they're, they're shocked. It sounds like I know what I'm talking about. I don't know if I'm imagining it, but when you show up prepared and you show that you know a lot about the thing, 
I think it changes the tone of the deposition and the witness shows a little more respect for you. Yeah. There's no condescension. And they're, they're like, you're just a lawyer. To, they're why, less why? willing to go out on a limb. That's right. I think, it, I think it's really good for everybody in the room to see that you're knowing what you're talking about and you have some credibility. And I think it makes the witness more forthcoming. Also, you know, we pay experts a lot of money to testify in cases and give the opinions. Utilize them beyond that. If you're going to take a depot that involves a technical aspect that your expert is addressing, schedule a call with your expert. You better schedule that call a week in advance so he's available. Schedule a call with your expert to have him explain some stuff to you and say, look, what do you think this guy's going to say and how should I address it? And they can give you some really good bullet points before you then start digging up dirt on the witness. Sometimes you can get really down in the weeds and you need to have somebody make sense of what you're, you know, all the stuff rattling around your head. This is where I found that it's sometimes useful just to talk to friends, relatives, wives, husbands, uh, your client. And uh, sometimes just batting it around. I find that people who are not experts or attorneys will sometimes just blurt something out and you go, yeah, that's it. That's a good way to put it. Say and, it in a simplistic can, way, yeah, really. which is the way you need to be saying it for the jury to understand exactly. what you're talking about. Tim, you made a very interesting comment about using your expert to help get you ready for a deposition. And there was a case that I had years ago, and believe it or not, the issue was it involved a static spark igniting kerosene in a can on a bed liner of a pickup truck. John, I was your uh, opposing counsel in that Were case. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Eric, there we go. Okay, Eric was my opposing counsel. And so there were multiple defendants. I don't remember which defendant there you were. had, Eric. There was 10 or 12 defendants, and one by one, we kind of picked them off. And then it came down to the main defendant in the case. And the expert that I deposed had literally spent, this was the defendant's expert, had worked his entire life, had his PhD and postdoctoral studies on the exact issue, the exact issue that was at issue in the case. Could the circumstances of our case have generated a static spark of sufficient strength to ignite kerosene vapors? That was it. And we're talking about joules and millijoules of energy and all this kind of stuff. And so I came in to take his deposition as prepared as I thought I was. I knew the case. I did everything that we were talking about. And this guy had a 350, 360 page report. He did computer modeling. And I questioned him for about six hours and didn't understand a thing. <laughs> I didn't understand anything that he was saying other than he kept saying, what you're saying is impossible. Yeah. What you're saying is impossible. Try as I may, I really didn't understand or, or grasp what the basis for that. So what I did is I continued the deposition and I called a good friend of mine, somebody I went to high school with, who is a chemistry professor at University of Missouri in Columbia. And I sent him the materials and he said, oh, there's all kinds of things. And so what I did literally is I spent several days with him going over it, helping me understand, not just that, but, and again, we didn't need to advance anything. We just needed to show how all of these variables that went into his modeling, and I'm not kidding you, believe it or not, I went back to finish this deposition, and this witness was very honest, very straightforward, and I went through 10 or 12 different assumptions that he had made, and I got him to admit that his assumptions could have been here, could have been there, and it changes the outcome. And one of the things, I'll give you just an example, was there a screen on the nozzle of the gas pump. Mm -hmm. The size and shape of that screen can depend on whether or not the vapors are such that they can ignite. Another thing, the static electricity charge was dependent on how fast the flow was of the kerosene through the nozzle. All of these things were variables and he made certain assumptions. So all I did was say, is this reasonable? Is this within reason? 
And then at the end of the deposition, and it was a couple-hour deposition, he changed his opinion. He changed his opinion. He said, I would have to agree with you. It is very unlikely, but possible. And then my next question was, well, if it's possible, should there be a warning? And he said, yes. Utilize I, your right, experts. Utilize your experts. And that time he wasn't, <laughs> wasn't my expert. One. Go get one. But it was just subject matter. It was a key issue in the case. But that's what we did. I went and took a crash course on this very, very narrow subject. You were talking about things on the internet, med mal cases. I've done cases where a medical malpractice case, a botched surgery, go online. And guess what? You can watch one. I don't care what kind of surgery it is. You're going to see one on the internet. If you have a case involving quality control regarding welding or testing Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard Test for rollover, for roof crush, you can sit there and watch them. Exactly. They're on YouTube. You can watch them. The resources are out there for you. There's no excuse for not being completely prepared for the deposition. Don't learn the subject matter in the expert from someone who's trying to make you lose your case. Right. <laughs> know right. the subject yeah. matter beforehand. Yeah. No, it's it's the kind of thing where you really can have a really good handle, not just on the subject matter. But then on the witness. On the witness. That is such a key. We had one case where one of our law clerks here, actually, I think it was my son, John, when he was a law clerk, and he spent the better part of the summer doing the background work, and it was an automotive product case, their main liability expert on defect. And I think we had 150 depot transcripts or whatever. And I took the deposition of this expert and Johnny worked on it for about two or three months. And we knew what issues that we wanted to pinpoint in these other depositions. But a lot of it, interestingly, was had to do with credibility and bias. We had sections on that. And so the first 30 minutes, 45 minutes of the deposition, I didn't ask a single question that this witness hadn't answered affirmatively under oath 300 in other depositions. Times. 300 times. Yeah. It was like, boom, boom, boom. When he said no, there it was right in front of him. And it turned out really well. I mean, it really turned out well. Yeah. So you want to find past depots or reports, if it's an expert written or articles they've written. And then how you use them kind of depends on how the witness is acting or whether you're going to try the case. You can use them right up front and have them admit they've written, said, or written something, and so they need to admit it here. Or you can let them trap themselves and say something different if you think you're going to try the case and not even call them on it at the depot and just know you have it at trial. And just, just say, hey, did you ever write an article called blah, 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 blah? Oh, you wrote that? What year? Yeah. Okay. And then move on. Yeah. Tim, I did that in a case where I had the same thing. I had prior statements under oath from the expert, and I started the depot out asking questions that he had answered under oath affirmatively, and he denied 90% of them. And I just let him go. I let him keep denying them. And then finally, after about 15 or 20 questions, I just said, what's going on? Yeah. And he was like, what? Objection. You know, and I said, what's going on? What are you talking about? You know, that's not, is it argumentative? And I said, well, every question I've asked you, the last 20 questions, you've answered yes to under oath in other legal proceedings. And you've denied all of them here. And I just want to know what's going on. Does your answer depend on who's paying who's you paying money you, to right. testify in and the case? So it, what it did was it made him a little more careful in answering his questions. He right. made him a little bit more honest. So here's a really controversial issue. Some people think you should prepare a detailed, comprehensive outline for a deposition. Other people think you should go in completely cold, don't prepare anything, and just wing it. Yeah. So what do, what do you I'm the, I'm <laughs> on the, the first one. <laughs> I'm flabbergasted when I see lawyers walk in with a blank notepad. And I mean, part of me is like, you must be a lot smarter than me. Like, I can't hold that on my head and not think I'm going to forget something. You've seen my outlines, John. My outlines are probably the most outrageously detailed at the office. 
I mean, they're like crazy, insane, long. It, Tim, it's not using it. Questions. It's preparing it. It's preparing the outline. And then I go it. off of it because I have my main yeah. things I want to accomplish on the first page, but I can go back to it. And on a break, I'll go back and look at my outline for the section I just covered. Oh, you know what? There's one more question I could have asked about that. And I thought ahead of time, I wanted to phrase it exactly this way and go back to my outline and ask that question. It's always there as a crutch if you need it to make sure you don't forget anything. But as we talked about before, don't just stare at your outline. Be willing to listen to the witness, but it's there if you need it. I do the same thing. A very detailed outline that turns into a checklist during the deposition. So yeah. as I'm preparing it, I'm aggregating information in the weeks or days before the deposition. But I try to get off the outline, try not to look at it other than for topics, usually, but there's exceptions. Sometimes there's a few questions I want to get exactly, exactly right. right. Exactly like, right. Like John was talking, you know you need certain words for agency or some other issue for based on the law in that state, and you want to make sure you say those words exactly that way. Or for impeachment, did you ever say this? Right. Another thing that's helpful is, you know, the terminology. Whether it's a medical case or whether it's a product case, it's good to research all of the terms that you think is, are going to be used. And sometimes I'll establish them with the witness before I start asking case-specific questions. Like, is this what this means? Is this what this means? So if I use those words where, where you agree we're talking about the same thing. What you don't want to happen is have, you know, a doctor or an expert start using terms over and over again, and you have no idea what they mean, and you're struggling to understand the concept on the fly. We've been talking about mostly taking adverse witnesses' depositions, the other side's expert or a defendant, a corporate rep deposition. How is your approach to preparation different for a treating doctor? I will spend a lot more time on that treating doctor's medical records, and you don't want to waste their time. If you want him to say the stuff that's in his medical records, have it immediately as soon as you get to that topic and say, doctor, can I point your attention to this from your medical records? Did you write that? What is it from? What did you mean here? And you're not going to spend as much time or any time digging up dirt on a treating doctor because turning on a treating doctor is not going to go good for you generally. They're going to start disagreeing with their own medical records. So I think I focus on making sure I understand the area of medicine they're going to talk about and knowing their records backwards and forwards. And I spend more time trying to figure out how can I get everything I need in as short a time as possible to make this doctor happy so that I can get in and out of here and be done? I think the confirmation bias is, as often in law, it's a, it's a big danger here when we have a witness that we like their story, we like them, they're going to come in and say the right thing. And it just doesn't go with our natural instincts to want to question our own favorite theory. But there's dangers there because you got to think like the defendant. Okay, the defendant's going to come in and attack them on this and that and that. Or they're going to say this word doesn't mean that, or this this result, this test result doesn't indicate that. So you have you to want always to cover it with them before the other lawyer goes. That's it. Yeah. And and as you, I bet both of you see this all the time. You go into a friendly doctor before the deposition. You say, here's the kind of questions I'm going to ask, and they go, don't worry, I got it, I got it. And and you say, well, can I ask you about page ten here, this line? And they go, oh, I hadn't noticed that. Sometimes I have to walk them through their own records, and and I tell them. I have to disguise it. I don't want to say, I don't trust that you really refreshed your memory looking at your records yeah, well, they're busy. carefully. They're I mean, busy. Exactly. You know, it's not their so, job to go back and look through our clients' records. We'd like them to, and some of them like to, but so I frame they it, haven't looked at them as closely as we have yeah, recently. I don't, to, I don't want to frame it by saying, I don't trust that you actually yeah. spent enough time doing this. So I like I'll just to, say, I got some questions about some of the things. I like to hand feed it to them. And it's saved depositions where you point something out 
they go, wow, I didn't remember that, whatever. And then it comes up in the deposition. So it's really important to prepare your witness like that. One of the things that I do that's, that's helpful for a treating doctor's deposition, rarely do you get a set of medical records from a doctor, a medical office that are in chronological order. If you just look at them visit by visit, for instance, you might be able to break it down to a more manageable number of pages. I'll put them in chronological order or whatever order I want them in. And then what I'll do is I'll just number them at the bottom of the page and I will come in with a set for the other attorney, for the doctor, and obviously one for, you know, for me to use. And I'll let everybody know on the record in the beginning, doctor, this isn't a complete set of medical records, but what I've done is exactly what I just explained. I've gone through and I pulled some out to go through this a little bit quicker and make the deposition go a little bit more efficiently. There's no problem. I acknowledge that all the records aren't there. And then what I'll do is I'll just say, doctor, let's go to the next page. And it's kind of nice. And Instead you, of doctor, right. can you find your discharge summary? Right, right. And he's exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. let me go through my thousand pages of records for you. And, and sometimes <laughs> you have to convince the doctor because they're a little uncomfortable not having their full chart. And you can say, you can have your chart right there. That's not a problem. But every one of these records, every one of these pages is already in your chart. And I found it's a great way to get through the deposition. Another thing too, Tim, that we've done, for instance, opioid cases where there are hundreds or thousands of pages of prescriptions and amounts, and we're looking at dosage amounts, going through those with a witness, sometimes it's impossible. You cannot right. do it without a summary exhibit. Explain a little bit what we do in that circumstance. So we have we create a chart where we go through, or we have like a pharmacist expert go through, go through the pharmacy records and compare and contrast it to the actual prescription records from the doctor who did the prescribing. And on an Excel spreadsheet that depending on how much was prescribed and how many years could be four pages, it could be 15 pages. And it is every single prescription of opioids that happened from beginning to end by that physician with the date it was prescribed, the amount that was prescribed, the number of pills, the number of milligrams, the specific type of opioid, and then conversions to based on the strength of the opioid and the total milligrams that so we have everything at our disposal without having to go through impossibly thousands of pages of pharmacy records and medical records what's most important is knowing what the pattern of prescribing was and exactly what was prescribed and once you have that chart made that summary exhibit it really makes it frankly possible to question witnesses about it tim if you have a deposition of your own doctor and you use that summary the very helpful summary mm -hmm. so you're planning on playing the deposition of your doctor at trial What's the foundational requirement so that at trial, you can pull that same summary out and, and point to it? Because I assume that's really helpful for the so, jury Yeah, I've that. done it a couple of ways. It's really silly to be going into a trial without everybody having some agreement on the base. If the case is about what opioids were prescribed, the parties should be able to come together. So sometimes I send it to the other side early on. And maybe with a set of requests for admissions or just one request for admission, admit this accurately reflects all the opioid prescriptions and try to get an agreement, like a stipulation, this is right. This chart is right. Some lawyers are more difficult and they don't want to do that and they'd rather it be confusing. And I understand that. And so what we've started to do is I'll either have my doctor go through the pharmacy records and our records and at least say they've spot checked it, but preferably go through almost all of them and say, yeah, this is accurate. What we have started doing is having a pharmacist who isn't giving opinions or addressing standard of care, just do that. Just lay the foundation for the chart. 
and lay the foundation that the conversion rates in the chart are correct for morphine equivalent dose, which means being able to compare apples to apples because yeah. different pills have different strengths. So yeah, it is very important to lay the foundation for the chart because otherwise you can't use it. And you want it laid so then you can use it with the other side when you try to ask them like, well, how much was prescribed here? How much was prescribed here? And they don't want to talk about that. And they go, well, I'd have to go back and look at that specific date. Like, well, here you go. It's all in one document. Right. So should you try to meet with the treating doctor? And if so, when? I mean, days before, the morning of? What do you think? I think it depends on whether you think there's really anything controversial about what you're trying to get from the treating doctor. If it's very straightforward and you know, your client was hit in an auto accident and it crushed a vertebrae in their spine and the surgeon did a particular surgery. I don't know why you need to meet. I mean, that guy's going to say, here's the injury. It's from the car accident. Here's what I did. All the treatment was necessary. If it's a more tricky issue, you may want to try to meet with them, but I'm finding it's increasingly impossible to do so. That why they, is that? Because medical malpractice insurance companies have put rules on their physicians. You cannot meet with a plaintiff's lawyer unless we have a personal attorney who has no role in the case present or advising you. And then that attorney will say, you're not meeting with them. I think part of the reason is they're always concerned, like, yeah, you're telling me you're not suing me and I'm just a treating doctor, but then you're going to get in the depot and you might try to prove I committed malpractice, then you're going to add me. I think that's the concern for why med mal. Yeah. You know what? I see that a lot too. What's your thought? Let's say an automobile accident and you've got a statement, a pretty clear statement in the police report of one or two independent witnesses, do you try to call them and talk to them? Or are you, are you better off just noticing up the deposition? What's the upside to downside to contacting them? You don't want to look like you're trying to manipulate the testimony. I generally won't. If I have a good statement from the police report, I don't want to just send a subpoena to somebody for a particular date. So we'll try to reach out to them for scheduling and just tell them what it's about. And usually I won't talk to them. I'll just have my paralegal Kelly talk to them. So if they ask, you ever talked to anybody from this firm, they go, yeah, his paralegal. Well, did you talk to Mr. Cronin? No, I've never talked to him. If they want to talk to me, I will generally just say, if I have a clear statement, I'll send you a copy of the police report with your statement so you can review it. We just want to ask you about what you saw and remember from this accident. We want to do it at a convenient time for you. Just tell the truth. I don't see why you need to talk to them because you just read the police report and those are always accurate, aren't they? <laughs> they are <laughs> oftentimes not remotely accurate. <laughs> I've had situations where I'll check the date on the police report <laughs> yeah. to make sure it was the same day. Another tip that has helped me in the past is especially nowadays where I've always taken depositions remote. I've been doing that for 15 or 20 years, but now it seems like almost all of the depositions are remote. And probably half of the depositions nowadays, you'll there'll be some problem with the connection or somebody can't hear, the camera's not working. And so what I do, and we make it a, a rule here, is the day before, not the day of, the day before, wherever that deposition's going to be held, obviously the witness doesn't need to be there, check it out. Check out the sound, go online, have your court reporter use the online exhibits, make sure there's no problem with that. Go through the exhibits and make sure that the videographer, whoever's going to post the exhibits with you, have them all, they're all in order. Sort of a dry run the day before. And about half of the time when we do that, some issue comes up, maybe the camera needs to be positioned a different way or the witness is seated too far away. That's something that your office can do, your secretary, your paralegal, but definitely doing a 15, 10-minute test of everything, make sure it's working the right way, exhibits are in order all the day before. It'll save you a lot of headaches and time on the day of. Yeah, I agree. So I've got another issue that happens more often than it should. Tim and Eric, let me ask you guys this. You've got a deposition. 
you've got your outline prepared, you've done all of this work, and there you are the evening before, say, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, and all of a sudden you get emailed to you another 13,000 pages of documents. And it's literally the evening of the deposition. And sometimes this happened to me where I get in the morning of the deposition. What do you do? My initial reaction is to say we're postponing this deposition. Same here. Everything goes in writing. This deposition is being postponed because something you just did that prejudiced me and there better not be an attempt to continue my trial date because we have to postpone the deposition because of something you did. Is there anything you do in advance to prevent that from happening? And it happens a lot. I mean, are you talking about an expert's file or defendant's documents? Both. Both. I try to get an agreement that each side is going to provide their experts, especially now that we're doing almost everything remotely, 20 to 24 hours in advance of the depot. But routinely then, 10 minutes before the depot, I'll get something else. And it just depends on what Yeah, with an is. expert that happens unintentionally yeah. a lot of times. Here's some notes they took right. last night. Exactly. It just depends no, on that's what not. And is. I'm talking about a product case with another 13,000 pages of defendant's documents that are all relevant I've had them during the deposition where they're prepared while I'm asking questions. I'll tell you what I have done. Or I'll, I'll make it clear on the record. This has happened. I am reserving my right to continue this deposition once I have an opportunity to go through these documents if I think I need to follow up. If you don't agree to that right now, then I'm postponing the depot before I start. One of the things that I do routinely is I will send an email a week before and a day before. And it's basically the same email and it will set out we're being told we have all the information that we need for this deposition. All the documents have been produced. And then I will say, if there are any documents, additional documents that are going to be produced, we respectfully request that they be produced two days before or whatever. And what I'll put in there is this, because our concern is we don't want to inconvenience you or your witness because the deposition will not begin on time. Yeah. And I will so, spend three hours right, going through exactly. documents. And I don't say that in there, but I have done that. And then I'll send a little reminder the morning, the day before, confirming that there are no additional documents. And sometimes it works and we get documents. But when it doesn't, what I do is I put it on the record. I apologize. I told the witness, it's unfortunate that they put you at this inconvenience to you in this way, but we're going to take a break. And I can't tell you how long it will be, but I would recommend that you go out, take a walk, get some lunch, and we'll be back this afternoon to start the deposition. Or if you haven't seen the documents yet either, it sounds like we both need a couple yeah, hours right. for you to go through the documents and so that's, and me. That, Yeah, that's what I do. I will take whatever time needed, whether it's four, five, six hours. I've even brought them into a conference room, had other attorneys or paralegal, you know, kind of sort through them. I'm not trying to intentionally hold up the deposition, mm -hmm. but I'm not starting the deposition until I've reviewed them. If it's really egregious, 20, 30,000 pages of, of documents, and they seem to be relevant to what we're talking about, then I think the right thing to do is cancel the deposition and make sure it doesn't affect your trial set. A version of this that happens to me more often than the product example you gave is when my client is getting deposed in a med mal case and the other side starts pulling out medical records of my client that they have gathered that they have not produced to me and I have terminated depositions. Like, look, if you gather medical records on my client, you have to give them to me. I have a specific discovery request about it. I don't need to make one. You have to give them to me and you withheld them from me. So I haven't seen them. I haven't gone over them with my client. Absolutely not. Are we sitting here and you ask them questions about medical records I haven't seen and they haven't seen? I'll cancel the depot. Get you a new date in a week. Depending on your type of case, there may be different types of prep that we didn't cover, but I think we covered pretty well with the general categories and I can run through them as a summary real quick. Sure. If you like. 
read your pleadings, both yours and all the other parties ahead of time. Go back and review them. You may need to amend. It may remind you about what you need to prove, what your allegations are, what defenses are. Go back through the discovery answers again. Go through the documents in the case again to figure out if there's any you may need to use and how. Pre-mark and highlight your documents and exhibits to be as prepared as you can. Always be the most prepared person in the room. Do your homework on the witness. If it's an expert, get the expert file ahead of time if possible. Once you've done all that, you can start preparing an outline, beginning of it, a summary of basic facts in the case and maybe your main goals. Get and review past transcripts of witnesses' depositions or articles or presentations they've given. If it's a technical expert or a doctor, do research on the subject matter, you know, the medical terms, conditions you're going to address, or the technical aspect of whatever you're addressing. If you need to, talk to your own expert before taking another deposition to better understand the issues. Call the expert. Pick their brain. If it's a treating doctor, make things as easy as you can for the witness. Have a complete set of organized medical records for the doctor and a subset that you can go through with them quickly. Consider if you need to make some summary exhibits to better be able to cover information more easily. Consider whether you want to try to meet with a treating doctor if you can, or if it's a third-party witness, that. Make sure your technology is prepared and ready to go so everything can go as smoothly as possible. Great summary. Make sure you have adequate time away from the world. Tell everyone to go away while you prepare. My attention span is like a you know house of cards. Someone knocks on the door, the phone rings, and so forth, and it just it blows it. It takes 20 minutes to get refocused. Exactly. So that's the only thing I would add to your, your list, Tim. Well, this concludes our session on depositions, preparation for the deposition. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back next time with tips and lessons for actually taking the deposition. All right. That's been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. I'm John Simon. I'm Tim Cronin. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And tune into other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library, including Heels in the Courtroom and Results Don't Lie. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.